So much of what we believe about the past gets tripped up and twisted around the fanciful world of pop culture. But when it comes to the early history of Durango, Colorado, it turns out there's a lot of overlap between the real history and what we see in the movies. At least on the surface. I think you could see a lot of a Hollywood Western in downtown Durango in the early 1880s. Robert McDaniel is a local historian here in Durango. So if you were to walk down the street in Durango early on, you would see almost exclusively wooden buildings. They had boardwalks. They didn't have concrete. Concrete hadn't even been invented yet. The streets were dirt. When it rained and snowed, it was mud, uh, which was a real problem. Today, many details are different from the way they were in the early 1880s. The sidewalks are made of concrete, the streets are paved with asphalt, but walking around downtown, it's easy to imagine life at the end of the 19th century. You know, you had the wooden buildings, you had the board sidewalks, you had the hitching rails out front. Everybody rode horses or walked. You had wagons, you had buggies. The 19th century still calls to us every day in downtown Durango. You had the depot, the train depot down at the south end of Main Avenue, which in the beginning wasn't Main Avenue, it was First Street. Deadwood, Gunsmoke, True Grit and the Hateful Eight. We have seen the story so many times. The way people dressed. So many times. Men almost always wore ties. Even those aspects of downtown life. There were brothels. That are long gone. Uh, certainly not on the main commercial street. Even those pieces of the picture that are missing today reinforce the story we know by heart. In the early days, there was a lot of lawlessness. There were men who were killed in the saloons. There were men killed in gunfights outside the saloons. Right down to the gunfights. There's nothing surprising about this description of Durango circa 1881. And it's tempting to believe that these superficial details tell the whole story. That the costume characters we imagine strolling the boardwalks and riding their horses, these people were the enterprising pioneers who founded the city. The tough settlers who carved civic order out of frontier chaos. Right? Wrong. Wrong because that's not how the city actually came to be. I'm Adam Burke. And I'm Kirby Bennett. Welcome to the Magic City of the Southwest, a program that looks at the places we love and the stories we tell about those places. Including, and maybe especially, the stories that are untrue. Durango, we often use a shorthand to account for the history of our city. It's the train, the river that runs through town, the Native American archaeology, and the old Diamond Bell Saloon. But underneath the surface, there are the pieces of our history that are often excluded, unexamined, and largely unknown. Are those stories missing by accident or by design? On today's episode, 
a story shrouded in mystery. And to tell that story, we have to rewind the clock a bit. We're taking it back a few years before the city's founding in 1881, when a series of events unfolded that were central to the origin of Durango. Events that concerned the ownership of land. Because it was around that time in the late 1870s that seven people filed homestead claims on land near the Animas River. George Hitchings, John W. Guthrie. Here's historian Robert McDaniel again. John Stansbury, Solomon Keck, Benjamin Holmes, Eliza E. Duggan, and James C. Cook. You might call these people the founding fathers and founding mother and founding mother of Durango. Even if you live in Durango, you probably haven't heard these names. Almost no one has. So we're going to say them one more time. John Stansbury, Eliza Duggan, Solomon Keck, Benjamin Holmes, James C. Cook, George Hitchings, John W. Guthrie. Each of these names appears in the federal record attached to a homestead claim, rectangle-shaped pieces of land south of the Animas River. And when you look at all of those rectangles overlaid on a map, they come together like puzzle pieces, neatly outlining the original town site of Durango. What's curious about these seven homesteaders is that they all filed claims around the same time. Equally curious, almost all of these individuals lived out of state when they filed their claims. And they all appear to have been from different towns. Solomon Keck lived in Kansas. Chautauqua County, Kansas. And Eliza Duggan and James C. Cook, they lived in Pike and Carroll Counties, Arkansas. John Guthrie lived in Walker County, Alabama. John Stansbury and Benjamin Holmes lived in Webster and Stone Counties, Missouri. And George Hitchings lived in La Plata County. Those are all stapled together. Okay. So you can just kind of have a look at those. But We recently met up with Robert McDaniel at his place. Where's the documentation showing that? That's probably got a dollar amount in it. Jamie, Adam, and I were there to look at the evidence he's pulled together. This is George Hitching's patent here. 13 years ago, when McDaniel started pursuing this story, he dug up digitized scans of the original documents in the La Plata County database. There's the Stansbury patent. Copies of these original records, scrawled out in 1881, are printed on 8.5 by 11 paper. And it's, it's a little difficult to read because it's 19th century handwriting, for crying out loud. Now, homesteading back then didn't always involve living on a patch of land, otherwise known as proving a claim. There were homesteaders who did it that way, but the Homestead Act of 1862 had some workarounds. You could just buy your homestead from the government. You didn't have to settle on it, prove up five years, build your claim shack, do all of that. You could just buy it. Dollar and a quarter an acre for a 160-acre homestead. That's what each of the seven homesteaders did in La Plata County. They bought the land. It was, as Robert McDaniel often says, a mystery. Seven people, all from different parts of the U.S., only one of them local. We suddenly bought up homestead land that fit together like shapes in a game of Tetris. Who were those people? I don't know if they were relatives of somebody or what. 
how do homesteaders from Alabama and Arkansas and can what's the common denominator there? Somebody had to know somebody. Well, somebody did know somebody, as it turns out. All of these people were connected through a fairly well-known part of Colorado history. And they all knew one man, a man named William Bell. William Bell came from a prominent family of physicians in England, went to medical college following in the footsteps of his grandfather and father, came to the United States, actually came to St. Louis in the 1860s, probably right after the Civil War. But he was fascinated with the West, as so many people in England were. William Bell followed his fascination west. He joined a survey expedition mapping a line for the Kansas Pacific Railroad. And it was on this expedition that Bell met William Jackson Palmer, as in General William Jackson Palmer. That's how those two met, and they became lifelong friends. And Palmer is someone who makes it into 19th century history books. He was a Civil War general, the second youngest one on the Union side next to George Armstrong Custer. Palmer got the equivalent of the Congressional Medal of Honor from his service in the war. So he was kind of a key person in the war. He got involved with the Kansas Pacific Railroad building west. They were building across Kansas into Colorado, basically built into Pueblo. And Palmer hatched the idea of creating a railroad that would basically run north and south along the front range of Colorado and sort of tie all these east-west transcontinental lines together. From those early ideas, Palmer created the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad with the man who would become his longtime business partner, William Bell. And those seven homesteaders, they play a bit part in the story of the railroad because they all granted William Bell power of attorney. In fact, they only owned their parcels for a short period of time before selling those parcels to the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. Railroad companies can't take out homesteads. Individuals take out homesteads. So William Bell put up homesteaders to take out these homesteads as individuals Anything legal that had to be done, Bell had the authority to do that as power of attorney for these people. And along the way, William Bell, or the people working with him, appear to have taken steps to conceal information about the homesteaders. If you look at the deed transactions, Their homestead patents list their addresses like Alabama, Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, wherever. But when they transferred their property to Bell or Bell on behalf of the railroad, they were all listed as La Plata County residents. So there's a little funny business going on. And in exchange for their participation in this funny business, the homesteaders were rewarded Robert McDaniel found at least one of the transactions. Bell paid Hitchings, George Hitchings, I think, $500 for 160 acres, which is $3.13 an acre. Remember that you could buy your homestead for a dollar and a quarter an acre, so that's 
more than double your money. It just seems fishy. Well, the records that I have were handwritten by somebody at the courthouse. So they never lived in Durango, though? Well, we don't know because... As we learned more about the seven homesteaders and the railroad's real estate dealings, we started wondering about something. Kirby was the first to bring it up. I don't know. When it comes to those homesteaders, I'm wondering, like, I don't know how many of them were real. Like, Were they real? Yeah. Is that another... <laughs> yeah, were they real? What is that? I'm so confused. Right, we're assuming they're real. We're assuming they're real. We're assuming they're real. Because you have names, but... Is it possible that the railroad was able to... Would make up people? Yeah. These are imaginary people? Probably not. Probably not. But what their connection was to the railroad people, I have no idea, but there had to be some. I mean, they're, they're from all over the place. It became an obsession for all three of us we were like characters in a Scooby-Doo episode, running over theories with each other and Google-stalking dead homesteaders online. We did find a marriage record that proved the existence of at least one homesteader, but this wasn't enough. It was going to take a lot more to persuade those hardline skeptics on our team. William Bell could have gotten real names from some sketchy clerk in the land patent office and created fake documents. We kept bringing up our fake homesteader theory with Robert McDaniel. He didn't buy it the first time, and he didn't buy it the second time either. I don't see any, necessarily any reason why the railroad would go to that extent. I mean, they had plenty of problems to deal with. You know, to get tripped up by having fake homesteaders, I just don't think that was a risk they would take. In the late 1870s, a rush was on in southwestern Colorado for land that was newly available. Just a few years earlier, it wasn't U.S. land at all. 3.7 million acres in the southern San Juan Mountains, including the land that now contains Durango and Silverton, it was all Ute territory. The U.S. had signed a treaty in 1868 that said western Colorado belonged to the Ute people. And within a few years, that treaty was making life complicated for white settlers who had started prospecting in the mountains. Here's Thomas Andrews, a history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. By the early 1870s, there's growing pressure on Ute peoples. And the big obstacle from the perspective of white settlers would be treaty guarantees, which meant that the Utes were, were relatively secure in their possession and their sovereignty over Western Colorado. Utes may have been secure in their possession of the land legally, but white settlers had no respect for what the law said. Prospectors, white prospectors, really fanned out throughout the state. Generally speaking, they were trespassing on indigenous land, but the U.S. government lacked both the will and the ability to keep those trespassers off. In 1871, some of these settlers discovered a profitable silver deposit near Baker's Park, the place known as Silverton today. By this point, the federal government, Congress in particular, had stopped making treaties with indigenous nations. So from 1872, 1873 onward, these things had the status of agreements. 
They were no longer like the supreme law of the land in the way that treaties had been. The U.S. wanted to decrease potential conflicts between Ute people and white prospectors. Their solution? Sign a new agreement, dissolve the existing treaty, and effectively downgrade the sovereign status of Ute people. In 1874, Congress approved the Bruneau Agreement, named after one of the U.S. officials who negotiated with Ute leaders. The Bruneau Agreement basically carves out a a rectangle in the San Juan Mountains. So the idea is that that land would no longer be Ute land, and instead that would open up the way for miners to come into the San Juans. As U.S. territory, that rectangle of land was now open to ranchers, miners, and homesteaders. But the land ceded in the Bruneau Agreement also drew the attention of industrialists on the Front Range, like William Jackson Palmer. The railroad had its eye on the mining area around Silverton pretty early on. As soon as Silverton really started getting going, the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad wanted to build there. At the time, Silverton was beyond the reach of the railroad. This was the mid-1870s, when most of the Denver and Rio Grande's development had occurred on the eastern side of the Rockies. They had built south along the Front Range to Colorado Springs, down to Trinidad, and they built over La Vida Pass to Alamosa. By the time the railroad had reached Alamosa, General William Jackson Palmer and his lieutenants had a growing amount of debt. The Denver and Rio Grande needed income to keep it going. From Alamosa, along the shortest possible route, the railroad was less than 150 miles from the mining riches in Silverton. Yeah, how are you going to get to Silverton? The chief engineer and the construction superintendent of the railroad, they're looking at the logics of geography, shortest route possible, how can you get across the Continental Divide, all the practicalities of building a railroad. Well, the shortest distance was up the Rio Grande and up and over Stony Pass, which crossed the Continental Divide. It was a very steep shot to take. But it wasn't just an engineering problem, it was a business venture. And that's where General William Jackson Palmer's background came in handy. Long before he'd arrived in Colorado, before he fought in the Civil War, Palmer learned the business of railroading when he was in his early 20s. Here's historian Thomas Andrews again. You know, William Jackson Palmer, he'd been involved in railroads for a long time. His background was really with the Pennsylvania Railroad. He'd been the private secretary to that railroad. It's very brilliant. President J. Edgar Thompson. And, you know, while while Palmer was working for the Pennsylvania Railroad, like he was working alongside a young Andrew Carnegie. Like this was kind of like the Google of the time. This was like the place where the most innovative, most imaginative, and, and also, you know, sort of most venal people in American business were kind of like clustered. And what Palmer learned in Pennsylvania, working for the Google of the 19th century, stretched well beyond railroad engineering. Railroad executives understood that the railroad company itself was not the main business. They have a transportation company. The transportation company is going to be like the big visible public entity. And the officers of the railroad, these are going to be like your William Jackson Palmers and your William Bells. These are going to be important people. They're not going to make their main fortune off the railroad itself. They recognize 
that controlling a railroad is the ideal situation for real estate speculation, right? says there isn't a modern day equivalent to the world the railroads operated in. You'd have to like imagine a place that doesn't really exist where there's not modern transportation. But like imagine if you're in charge of Colorado Department of Transportation in a situation where there wasn't much in the way of existing roads or highways and you got to plan where those routes were going to be and a world then where there were no like legal barriers or uh, ethical barriers to using your insider knowledge to profit from you know the certainty really that like when you locate transportation routes there are all sorts of ways in which land values will increase both palmer and bell were kind of upper crust people they saw opportunity in the west to make money honestly and do good things i guess in the process of Colorado during the 1870s and 1880s with Native Americans pushed to the margins, industrialists used the tactics of colonial conquest to compete against one another. Hard rock and coal, smelting, real estate speculation, General William Jackson Palmer and his team of railroad executives came to the game board playing to win. You know, when he begins to think about the Denver and Rio Grande, he knows from the outset that he's going to have a bunch of side hustles and that in a lot of ways, those side hustles are going to be, those are going to be the things that are most important to him personally. Wherever they went, if there was an existing town, they built their own town nearby. Sort of first time that they trot out this model is with Colorado Springs. They could maximize their profits by building their own towns. Colorado Springs is Palmer's baby. You know, it's an offshoot of the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. They did it everywhere they went, really. In an area that was sometimes called South Pueblo or Bessemer. They founded El Moro. Crested Butte to some extent. Alamosa was a Denver and Rio Grande town. Antonito was a Denver and Rio Grande town. So the DNRG leaves, you know, a really, really heavy handprint over Western Colorado. that's how Durango came to be. It wasn't built slowly and organically by a few homesteaders. It was a master plan community. And that master plan was designed to maximize benefit to the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. They brought in a surveyor who surveyed the town site, 25 foot lots. They designated blocks for parks, schools, I believe, the county government. They had this all platted out before a single survey stake was driven. Then they began selling those lots in September of 1880. From what we know, the railroad acquired the land that became the Durango town site for a little more than $3 an acre. Within a few months, William Bell was making almost $2,000 an acre selling platted lots. There were coal mines, a smelting operation, mining profits in Silverton, and the railroad quickly launched one of its many subsidiaries. 
the Durango Land and Coal Company. By 1908, the Durango Land and Coal Company had paid investors $400,000 in dividends. That's well over $13 million today. It's worth mentioning that there was already a town upriver from Durango. Animus City had been established in 1876. You know, Animus City had a newspaper, the Southwest. And in May of 1880, the Southwest has already gotten wind of the fact that the railroad's going to create their own town. And the quote was something like, where this new community of Durango is to be or not to be, only God and the DNRG know. After Durango was off and running, it took just a few months for Animus City's bank and all of its major businesses to relocate. They saw their handwriting on the wall. This is not rocket science for those people. They didn't know about rockets back then, but, you know, this wasn't brain surgery. I mean, Durango was just such a successful real estate venture on the part of the railroad. As we came to the end of what Robert McDaniel could tell us, we still had questions. And we kept coming back to those seven homesteaders. Were they real? Were they fake? How did Bell, did Bell travel to these, this, all these homesteaders scattered across the country? You're young and enthusiastic. You have lots of time to uh, try to track down all that information. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how possible it is to, to find that out. A few nights before we finished this story, I followed up on one last hunch. I was thinking about George Hitchings, the one person in the homesteader scheme who was a La Plata County resident. Maybe he'd left traces behind of his life in Western Colorado, like a family or property records. So that night, I did some more Google stalking, and that's when I found something. Next day, Kirby, Jamie, and I met up to talk about the new information. It says George Livingston Hitchings, birthday 1834. Mm-hmm. And then it looks like he died on March 22nd, 1920. 1920. Okay, but he was from New Brunswick. New Brunswick? New Brunswick from Canada. The information came from a family genealogy website. George Hitchings was born in Canada. He and all his siblings immigrated to the U.S., but George was the only one who came out west. Appeared on the census. George Hitchings appeared on the census of June 1880 at Animus City, La Plata County, Colorado. The year before his homestead patent is recorded in La Plata County, he shows up in the census data here. 46 years old, single, mining is his occupation. And sometime after he sells his homestead land to the railroad, George Hitchings heads to California. What happened to his family, though? In 1890, a voter registration record places George Hitchings in Half Moon Bay, California. And when they read that, Kirby and Jamie start riffing on the possibilities. More opportunity, possibly. In Half Moon Bay? You guys know ever know Half Moon Bay? (laughs) Yeah. It's up near Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm, It's Mm -hmm. by Santa Cruz. Yeah, what was going on? There's no mining there. 
10 years later, the U.S. Census shows Hitchings in California's Central Valley. He's 66 years old, he's still single, and from what we can tell, he stays in the area for the rest of his life. I feel connected to George. Yeah. Who like is some he? Empathy yeah, for like him. empathy. Just this like kind of single guy. Mm-hmm. His yeah. whole life and I don't know, I guess there's like some sadness. And then Hitchings appears on a cemetery database in Visalia, California. The cemetery records the death of Hitchings, but no record of a headstone for him. Within a few minutes of hearing that, Kirby finds an obituary dated March 24th, 1920, in the Fresno Morning Republican. Funeral services for George L. Hitchings, who has been confined to the county hospital for the past nine years, were conducted this morning at the funeral parlors of A.E. Brooks. Mr. Hitchings passed away yesterday afternoon. Deceased was a native of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and was 86 years of age. He had been a resident of California for 35 years. No known relatives survive. Uh, so. so he was in the hospital for nine years? As we follow the trail of breadcrumbs, George Hitchings becomes more than just an anonymous pawn in a real estate speculation scheme. Yeah, he's real and he had a life. And his little pit stop on his journey in Durango, we interact with that story every day under our feet. For a short time, George Hitchings owned a piece of Durango, 160 acres that stretches from 3rd Avenue to Buckley Park and from the city market downtown to the old power plant. This was all George's land, and then he sold it to William Bell and the railroad for $3.13 an acre. We have so many questions for William Bell and William Jackson Palmer about the ethics of the companies they ran, about the fortunes they made from their many side hustles. And we'd love to know how they found the seven homesteaders who claimed the land that became Durango. The story of these homesteaders will remain mostly in the shadows. Meanwhile, history has smiled fondly on William Jackson Palmer, his service as a Civil War general for the Union Army, his role in the founding of Colorado Springs, and his financial support for many institutions there. And yet, we don't have a complete picture of Palmer's business dealings. Historian Thomas Andrews went looking for more detail, and he ran into a wall. I spent a lot of time going through all of Palmer's papers. You can find every letter the guy wrote during the Civil War. You can find every letter he wrote when he was surveying Colorado for the Kansas Pacific Railroad in the late 1860s. You can find most of his correspondence from when he was planning the DNRG. And then as soon as the railroad's built, and as soon as he actually starts doing these things, founding towns, creating these offshoot mining companies and so forth, his papers are just completely sanitized. And so there's been this kind of erasure from the historical record that's made it very difficult to grapple more fully with the way that he got things done. Perhaps Palmer or his family knew historians of the future would be looking for answers and got rid of the unflattering stuff. We'll never know for sure. General Palmer, William Bell, George Hitchings, and the other homesteaders, they're all gone from this world now. 
but the train is still here. Durango residents have mixed feelings about that train. We have always had a love-hate relationship with the railroad, and probably always will. Today, the narrow-gauge railroad between Durango and Silverton brings in visitors from all over the world. It's kind of remarkable that the train is still here at all. In a way, it's like a circus animal, a beast at a zoo, the only surviving creature from a show that's long gone. The trains we have in Durango are stuck here. This is an animal that was made to run, to travel great distances. Our train is trapped in a tiny valley, ferrying tourists back and forth to Silverton. Even in captivity, the train gives our community purpose, meaning, a pulse. The railroad is still to this day, a very important aspect of what Durango is all about. Visually, economically, it's still much of the soul of this town, for better or worse. Mostly better, I think. The town comes to a halt when the train arrives and departs, and longtime locals find themselves involuntarily waving to passengers as they roll through town. It's like time stands still. Watching the train, you feel the reverberant mythology of the American frontier wash over you. To me, it is the very symbol of continuity of our history here. It's, it's one of those rare threads from beginning to right now that's ever-present. The next time you hear the train whistle, Give it your full attention. The shout of wonder, confidence, industrial pride. The howl of conquest. And bellowing aggression. It's the wail of those who once called this place their homeland. An exaltation of fearsome power. The thrilling song of a lost world. Echoing across the mountains and valleys of this land, announcing to everyone within earshot that the 19th century is still here. This podcast is a production of Magic City Studios. Our dynamic trio is Jamie Wanzik and the two of us. You can subscribe to the podcast and get in touch with us at themagiccity.org. Today's episode would not have been possible without historians Robert McDaniel and Thomas Andrews. Support for the Magic City of the Southwest comes from the City of Durango's Lodgers Tax Fund. Our podcast was created in partnership with KSUT Public Radio. Special thanks to Tammy Graham and Ken Brott at KSUT. To Tommy Crosby, Catherine Wagoner, and Durango's Creative Economy Commission. 
the Charles de Ferdinando and Susan Jones at the Animus City Museum. To Nick Kenjorski and Gretchen Gray at the Center for Southwest Studies. And to Ryan Osborne, Jeannie Costello, and Didi DeHaro-Brown for their enduring passion for inclusive Durango histories. I'm Adam Burke. And I'm Kirby Bennett. We'll see you next time for more stories of the Magic City. Thank you.